0: As the country looks for better alternatives to police for people in crisis, Eugene, Oregon's CAHOOTS program is the model. So what happens when a much bigger city tries this approach? We learn about the STAR program in Denver. That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at Patreon.com slash Criminal Injustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your justice nerd and geek extraordinaire, always out there looking for news of the criminal justice system for you and still feeling lucky as heck to have that lovely day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Welcome back again to our new 10th season. We're grateful for your support and always want to hear from you. Go to our website, criminalinjusticepodcast.com, and send me your questions. That's right. If you can't believe what you're hearing about the system or you just want an explanation for something, you can ask Dave. Go ahead and do it. We're beginning this new season with the issue of alternatives to police responses when people are in a crisis situation in a public space. This was a big point of public discussion in the year that followed the murder of George Floyd. How often really do we want and need police responses to calls and issues that aren't really criminal law or justice problems? Among the many issues targeted for non-police response, people in crisis because of breakdowns in mental health or homelessness or drug addiction. And it seemed like all at once the word on everyone's lips was CAHOOTS. That's right, CAHOOTS. It stands for Crisis Assistance. Helping Out on the Streets, a program in Eugene, Oregon with a 30-year-plus history doing exactly this kind of work. Now, in on episode 142, we brought you a conversation with journalist Rowan Moore-Garrity, who wrote a real thorough, in-depth examination of Cahoots for The Atlantic, the program's history, how it functions, and why it has had the kind of sustained success that it has. We learned a lot. And one of the things we ended the interview with, if you recall, was the question of what happens when another city, maybe a much larger or different or more diverse city, tries this. After all, Eugene is a city of less than 170,000 people, not the most diverse, but with a very substantial network of social safety net programs and agencies that CAHOOTS has always worked with. Cities, by definition, they're all somewhat different, even in this cookie-cutter age. They're different sizes, they have different population demographics, and they have differences in robustness, if that's a real way to put it, of the supports for people in need that they provide. Now, in this episode, uh, we'll get a look at an answer to that question. A couple of years before CAHOOTS became the center of talk nationwide about police reform, people in Denver, Colorado, began investigating the CAHOOTS approach, asking if it might work in their city. Denver is much larger than Eugene, more diverse. Could such an approach succeed in Denver? Eventually, Denver funded and created its own Cahoots-like program. It's called STAR, Support Team Assisted Response. They got it ready to go and launch was scheduled for early 2020, but it was delayed by the onset of the COVID pandemic. Nevertheless, the city went ahead and launched STAR a few months later in June of 2020. Now, lots of people were behind this effort from grassroots organizations in Denver to members of the Colorado State Legislature. Here's some audio from an NPR report. The speaker here is Leslie Herod, who represents Denver in the legislature. She played a role in the creation of STAR after learning about cahoots in Eugene. Check it out.
1: It'll help us to begin to break the cycle of incarceration, because this is a cycle. Because people don't just go in for one time and then they're, they're forgotten about forever. No, it's about a cycle of substance use, of mental health crisis, of inappropriate law enforcement response and an inappropriate criminal justice response.
0: How has it panned out a year later? Does it look like it can work? Are there supporters, detractors? On this episode, we'll talk with a journalist on the ground in Denver who has reported on Star from the beginning until right now. And he'll tell us just what the obstacles have been to scaling something like this up and where the challenges lie looking forward. David Sachs is a journalist for Colorado Public Radio and the publication Denverite. He covers stories and issues involving growth and change, including police and corrections reform. Over the past months, his stories have ranged over an expansive set of issues from the COVID vaccine to housing to transportation to all of the issues involved in the recommendations for change in the Denver Police Department that have been made in the last year. Today he'll discuss with us his stories on Denver's Star program. They ran on NPR and in Denverite. David Sachs, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. I'm glad you're here. So, let's start with some uh some context, a little uh, little history. As I said in the introduction today, Uh, The model for STAR in Denver, the model for any of these programs pretty much anywhere is Cahoots in Eugene, Oregon. So how did Denver get started down this road? Was it a precipitating incident? Was it uh, agitation or work by activist groups? How did it all come together? If you could give us a brief summary.
1: Sure. I mean, I think it was it was all of the above. Right. As so many of these things are, it's never as simple or black and white as it seems to be. Uh, once the public starts knowing about it but I think you know in my reporting one of the things that um, that I learned that was pretty interesting was this started way before anyone was talking about this stuff um, you know decades ago uh, precipitated by you know mistreatment of people of color especially uh, by police in Denver and elsewhere and also in the in the jail system here um, but officially I guess uh, you know the government line is probably you uh, Denver Police Chief Paul Pazin, before he was a chief, he was a commander. And uh, Leslie Herod, who's a state representative, went to uh, check out that CAHOOTS program in Oregon and sort of uh, they were they were totally inspired by it. Um, Now, what what led up to that, I think, was was probably a lot of work by activists who were sort of, they Uh might say, screaming into the void. (laughs) Um, And then when this does come out, a lot of them, you know, we we can cover it later but you, you know it did start with activists it started with with incidents um including i mean one of the one of the leaders at the Denver Justice Project which has been a big influencer here um you know he was he was stopped by police he's a black man um named Alexander Landau he was stopped by police and um and frisked and beat up um for essentially you know driving uh while black. So um there there are many incidents like that um that, that sort of led to this. But uh when the police chief uh and, and Leslie Harrod went to 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 Cahoots, they came back, brought that idea to Denver and sort of got the mayor to sign off and um sort of created their own program within the police department more or less to begin with.
0: So right, right. And we will return to that very, very important point of this being within the police department. So it's all well before the George Floyd murder and the conversation pretty much everywhere, including Pittsburgh that followed that terrible, uh, that terrible incident. Uh, And so star launches coincidentally, really uh, just days after George Floyd's death. Right.
1: Right. I think it was like a week or so um, after uh, his death, George Floyd's death and, and protests, you know, in Denver and obviously around the country sort of erupted, it was interesting timing, um, but it had, you know, any, like any government program, it had been in the works, um, you know, uh, with concessions and and community engagement and lack thereof, some people might say, um, for, for, I think, you know, a couple of years, two and a half years or so, maybe three before then.
0: Right. So. It takes a while to get something like this going. I think that's an extremely important point. It's reflected in all of your reporting. You you don't just walk out and say, okay, here's a great idea. We wrote out a plan. Let's start now. It takes a long time. You need buy-in from various agencies and organizations. You need funding. You need all kinds of things. Where does the funding
1: come from? How did they manage to get funding for something like this? So initially the funding is coming from a grant, um, from a sales tax basically. So there's this, let me back up for a second and Denver uh, voters decided to pass a sales tax um, dubbed uh, caring for Denver. And it, 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 it's it's this pot of money um, that, uh, you know, nonprofits and governments can get um, for uh, uh, for treating mental health issues, right? And I think, you know, we don't think of police as as uh, treating mental health issues. But the reality, as we all know, or as a lot of people that are probably listening to this podcast might know, um, you know, they're dealing with people with mental health issues all, all day, every time. day. And that's one of the problems. Right. So um, so initially the money came from uh, this fund. Uh, it's not a permanent source. Right. They have to apply each year. But this was just a pilot program. Um, it's now moving into um, sort of a more permanent program. Uh, but initially, it comes from, from taxpayer, yeah, from sales taxes, from, from tourists and locals. Okay, so it, it's got the taxpayer funding. They get a grant uh, from
0: the taxpayer fund. It's got the backing of the chief of police, uh, a member, at least one, of the state legislature. Some of the activist community seems to have been behind it, the Denver Justice Project, Uh, An organization called the Denver Alliance for Street Health Response, um, uh, mental health care agencies. So you got a lot of players lined up. You got money lined up. What does it look like in the pilot phase? What exactly makes up a star team or uh, what would you see if if
1: star uh, came to a scene on the street? So you see uh, a van. Um, it's it's. Uh, I think the the first ones have been owned by the police department, but you wouldn't necessarily know it's a police van, right? It's a white van, and it's a. Uh, I've gone out there with them. It's you know, um, it, it's it's a mental health practitioner, a practitioner, a professional, um, uh, someone who knows about uh, mental health, someone who knows about substance abuse, and there's also a paramedic, right? Because a, a lot of times these issues that are going on inside people's minds that are causing them to do things, whether it's because they have um, a substance abuse issue or, or because they have a behavioral health issue. Um, sometimes there are physical issues going on, too. Right. But what you won't see are any police officers. Um, uh, you won't see any guns. You won't see any weapons. Um, these are people who, whose job it is to talk with people in crisis. Um, these are crisis interveners and um, th- their job is to go out and you'll see them. Ah, uh, talk to people on the street and um, connect them with services. Sometimes that means, um, you know, taking them in a van somewhere, maybe to a shelter. Um, sometimes I, I think rarely this happens, but there have there is the, uh, the the there is the eligibility of a mental health hold, which is can be somewhat controversial, right? Um, but for the and most that part, means a mental health hold would mean that somebody is thought to be a
0: danger to themselves, the public. You have to go to a court and you get an order that the person is held, not just offered treatment, but held for treatment.
1: Right, and, and, and I think in the first um, six months with zero arrests and over, I think it was about 750 um, calls, um, I was told there was no mental health holds. Um, some someone, someone actually reached out to me because they saw my reporting and, and said, that's not true. I wasn't able to verify one way or the other, um, unfortunately. So I don't know if, you know, <laughs> it's probably not helpful and maybe I need to be a better reporter, but, um, that is one, that is one small sort of, um, issue that pe- people do have. Um, the point is it's not police officers. Um, you know, yes, that's the main thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talking with these people. And it's, it, what's interesting is, you know, there are a few different ways for people to be dispatched, right? There's a, 911. Yeah, this right? is
0: important. Yeah, because that's what you, you've described really well, what shows up on the street. But how do they end up at the scene? You need some kind of a dispatch facility service,
1: uh, uh communication center. How does all that work? So there's uh, you know, they're they're dispatched into the 911 center. If someone calls 911, um, there's sort of a decision tree that uh operators deal with and they they say, Hey, um, the, the 911 operator might, might say okay this person is not in danger to themselves they aren't physically endangering anyone else maybe they're just like yelling in the street right um, this looks like a call for star and then they'll they'll send uh they'll dispatch star that's one way another way is uh police officers walking the street can literally call star if they see something that they're like that's not really for us we don't need a gun and a badge for this um, let's send the mental health and substance abuse workers and paramedics instead. Um, and then they can go on and, you know, do whatever police work they need to do. Um, and then, uh, another way is like, you know, one example given to me was, uh, by one of the mental health practitioners was there was a, a person trespassing. Technically they were trespassing at Seven Eleven. It was broad daylight, right. But mm-hmm. they weren't buying anything and they were unruly, um, you know, being loud, but, but not being violent in any way. And, and they called the police, the police came, and then the police said, "You know what? we're we're here. We're dealing with this now, but we'll 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 call star and and they'll come and and relieve us." So now,
0: uh, one thing that I know goes into this dispatching system is a series of categories. And the categories uh, sort of determine in a loose or not so loose way, Uh, which calls will be given to star and which will be given to the police. So on the star side, uh, they get codes like assist or intoxicated person, suicidal welfare check, indecent exposure, trespass, things like that. What they won't get, just so everybody's clear, is violent or life-threatening emergencies, criminal activity, weapons, threats, uh, things with violence, injuries, uh, serious medical needs. That's that's
1: sort of the way it shakes out, isn't that right? Yeah, and I think that's really important because I think when a lot of people talk about uh, the debate over the, the 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 institution of policing, you know, they say, well, what do you want, like a therapist responding to to a violent murderer? And and, and I think. The answer is obviously no, you don't want that. Um, if there's a crime in progress, you know, they want they want police. So um, that's a really important distinction.
0: Yeah, so th- this doesn't interfere with what we would want police to do. It goes to that very central question that's been raised so often in so many places across the country uh, post uh, George Floyd's death. What do we really want and need police for? And what do we really want other service providers for? Um, and, and, and so this, this is all built into the system.
1: Right. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons, um, the chief of police, Paul Pazin is behind it. You know, he, he repeatedly says that he wants the right response to the right problem. And in his view, um, you know, this frees up his officers to do police work, which sort of over time has devolved in a lot of ways into, um, dealing with, with people's mental health, behavioral health issues, um, and they're simply not trained to do that. Um, it's, it's not the right response to 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 that problem. Right. So this puts new
0: people in charge of that or in a position to render those services and gives the police the freedom to move on to other things for which they are suited and trained. So, um the the program starts uh launches in a pilot phase for 6 months that begins in June of 2020 uh how does the whole thing look uh after that pilot phase i, re- I referred a little while ago to an evaluation that was done independently how do the first
1: 6 months look i mean they look uh pretty pretty gleaming you know on on first read um, almost 750 cases zero arrests um, and and the implication is that there is that um, people aren't um, you know sort of sent down this cyclical spiral into the criminal justice system right they might have been arrested for being drunk in public but but instead they get the help that they need um, whatever that might be it might be um, they need they need some temporary shelter. They might need to go to a substance abuse center, um, harm reduction center, you know, um, things like that. Um, and so so a lot of people, including the city, you know, they they said this is a this is a huge success and we need to, um, you know, we need to to expand this program.
0: Yeah and that that brings up two really important points that I want to give you a chance to amplify. Number one, uh we really should notice that this is a pilot project. It is uh actually the 6 months uh piloting we're in one kind of well-defined geographic
1: area, isn't that right? Yeah, it's um uh, pretty much downtown Denver, um central you know central Denver. Um obviously the the, the city's pretty sprawling actually um and you know problems aren't just in downtown denver although they may seem concentrated there um there are also more people noticing things there so it's it's everyone said everyone agrees that you know it, it needs to expand geographically as well as um, you know uh, the number of people who work for the program right so uh the,
0: it, it's a test it's a pilot that's what we want to do and Uh, Again, I think people get so eager sometimes they think they found a solution. They think, oh, well, we'll we'll just stand this up. But you you really should take it slow at first and that it does appear to be what happened here. The other point that I think is important is you mentioned a number of social service organizations that would sort of tie in that they could bring a person to a shelter. They could bring a person to a detox center. One of the things that we learned about CAHOOTS in our last episode was how How many uh, social service agencies Eugene, Oregon had for a city its size? I mean, that program doesn't exist by itself. It's sort of in a nest of these other programs, a web, and they they bring people to the right places, refer them to the right places when those exist. Is the same thing true in Denver? Do they have a pretty
1: robust social service network? You know, robust, I wouldn't call it robust. Otherwise, you know, we Uh wouldn't have. So many, so many people um, in need uh, of those services, right? I think that's um, that's a big part of the continuum that, that is missing. I mean, I think there are a lot of nonprofits and there are a lot of people who are trying to do the good work, but I'm not sure that we have the mental health and behavioral health and substance abuse infrastructure um, to to do this on a citywide level. That's based on my reporting. Um, it's not an opinion, you know. Um, it's also based on talking um, to, to, to lawmakers and people in these fields. I mean. There, there are a lot of people in Denver um, who need the help. And if they all decided at the same time, or if they were all dispatched by the STAR program at the same time to get help that they need, I'm not sure there would be enough places uh, for them to get that help. So the city is doing some things. Nonprofits are doing some things to sort of try to meet that need. I think that mental health tax, tax that I mentioned earlier is, is going to to, to help, and, and we also passed a sales tax. Voters did um, to, to, to address homelessness, and those issues are obviously intertwined. So, um, so, so that is one thing that that's missing it is a is a robust network, a robust safety net um, to to help all the people that uh, you know will eventually that already need help and might actually be sent to get help if and when the STAR program expands citywide.
0: Let's take a quick break here. We're with David Sachs of Colorado Public Radio and Denverite. And we're talking about Denver's response to the national discussion on getting more appropriate services instead of police to the scene of personal crisis, their STAR program. Come back in just a minute. We'll have more. Hi, David Harris here with you on Criminal Injustice, and our guest on this episode is David Sachs. He's a journalist. He reports for Colorado Public Radio and Denverite. His pieces have been heard on NPR. And we're talking about Denver's STAR program, uh, a mental health dispatching organization Uh, piloted in Denver for six months uh, with some good results. So David, before the break, uh, uh, you know, we were looking at this, uh, looked at the fact that it had been independently evaluated, the goals of the program, keeping people out of the criminal justice system, getting them to the services that they need when there's a mental health crisis or person's homeless. Um, And in this period, uh, the test period, the pilot period in one area of Denver Um, You get 750, roughly speaking, calls for service, uh, and that reduces uh, police involvement in calls by about three percent and takes people into the right places to get the services they need instead of just into the criminal justice system. Do, Do we know anything else about the people served, what
1: their issues were or who they were? the the vast majority, the vast majority of people that the star uh, responders deal with are people experiencing homelessness. I think that was, that was at 68%. Um, and 61% showed signs of mental illness. Um, a big criticism was of the program in the beginning from advocates was basically that they weren't tracking race, um, closely enough. Um, I think it was I'm sorry, I'm not sure about the number, but uh, a big chunk of people who who, uh, I mean, it, it's a mostly white city, right? And most of the people that um, that 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 responders responded to uh, were were listed as white, um, but a big chunk of people, uh, basically, there was there was no data for their race. And I think, you know, when you're in this moment of 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 um, you know addressing institutional racism in in, in policing and um, and in corrections and in the criminal justice yes. system mm-hmm. in general important um, omission
0: absolutely yeah i look back at that as you were talking and it it said that 35 percent fully a third of all of their context uh contacts had race listed as unknown uh, and and less, a smaller percentage, almost a third, were listed as white. So that that really is something that needs to improve. Um, so uh, it seems to be considered a success by the leadership. But by the spring of 2021, your reporting uh, begins to show that not everybody is as thrilled as the chief of police and, and some others. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking about a piece you did uh, in April of 2021. Uh, focusing on some of the very same groups that supported the establishment of STAR in the first place, particularly the Denver Alliance for Street Health Response or Dasher. Um, They held a public event uh, in what uh, they were seeking a return of the STAR program to what they saw as its original vision, that it would be run by and for community groups like There. So good start, they said. But um, uh, to use their metaphor, they wanted to be in the driver's seat and they would allow the city to sit in the passenger seat and they were going to be heard on this. What's the story with that? Why the dissatisfaction?
1: So I think, you know, I, I, I mentioned this earlier. I mean, even as a reporter, you know, I didn't know how deep these conversations go as far as how many decades, you know, how many years back people have been sort of screaming into the void for these changes Um, and now I think a lot of people feel because it might be politically easier because of the sort of mass unrest about um, you know racism and brutality in our policing institutions. Um, I think a lot of people who've been working on this for a long time are like you know pleased that, that 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 people in power are listening that governments are listening but at the same time um, they feel like they don't want this program to be hijacked dasher for instance um, which is run by a guy named Vinny cervantes here you know they've been doing uh you know mutual aid network and sort of street health response for years um along with other organizations and other individuals and and, and in their mind basically one of the things they're worried about is is that the people, you know, running the program or that are on the street might not always have sort of the life experience that will allow them to interact with um you know people that, that need help. Um maybe it's because of race, maybe it's because of income, maybe it's it it's because it could be because of a number of things. But um you know they want sort of the community the community to help the community as opposed to sort of uh, um you know an entity Coming down from above, you know, in this environment where there's already a lot of government distrust.
0: Right. I I read some of the comments from Mr. Cervantes, uh, who you quoted in your reporting. Uh, He basically kind of says he wants less in the way of professionals and more in the way of community members with connections to the community who will have the right cultural understanding and so forth. And that's a comment you hear a lot when you talk to people who uh, are involved in violence interruption. That what makes, gives them credibility and what allows them to help people is because they're on the street and often of the street, they're not professionals coming in from above.
1: Yeah. And I think he would actually say, Vinny and others might, you know, say, well, they are professionals just in a different sense. Right. Yeah. Um, no, point well taken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and, and this is again, something like, you know, I learned I, that that was the biggest eye opener for me. I mean, obviously it makes sense to have people who are trained to, Handle these issues, deal with these issues, instead of people with guns and badges who, who you know, could potentially escalate things. But I just had no idea, and I, I identify as white. Um, I had no idea, you know, how far back these conversations are going. So that was pretty eye-opening to me, and I think, you know, a lot of people should understand these are not new conversations that are that are being had. That's a very important point. So, what's been the reaction to those
0: demands from the community uh, to the people running the program, whether it's the chief of police
1: or others? So I mean, you know, it, it is being moved out of the police department. Um, it's now part of the uh, the city's public health department, uh, uh-huh. the Department of Health and Environment, which I think, you know, a lot of people think is a big deal. Um, you know, but but the police, uh, you know, are still you know they're involved, and I think you know a lot of activists aren't aren't interested in that. Um, you know, the nine one one center is is a separate entity. Um, you know, because they deal with. They, it's part of public safety, but it's not necessarily just part of the police department. So, so there might be a way to sort of move it out, you know, completely. I think that's what a lot of people are advocating for. Um, the the department of public health is, you know, having conversations with these advocates. Um, there is sort of a, a team of people who are, um, who who are involved in, uh, I guess, guiding the process. But again, the, I would not say that the community is in the driver's seat necessarily. Um, you know, that that there are these are public health professionals who are in the driver's seat. So it's not the police at this point, but, um, I'm not sure that's what all activists want. And then I think there are people that are more in the middle. They're like, okay, well, let's, you know, you know, maybe this is pragmatic to a lot of people, you know, let's take this slowly, uh, kind of thing. But you can imagine if people are advocating for this for so long and they finally, you know, get something in the, in the direction that they want, you know, th- they're going to want to keep running with that yeah so as you see it now uh, there'll be
0: continuing conversations, discussions, demands and responses. Do you see the program uh, expanding to cover more of Denver? What do you think is ahead?
1: So we know that it's um it's going to cover more than Denver um, I think the expansion is rolling out s- more slowly than uh, you know people would like um, I think covid is is taking a lot of sort of bandwidth. Sure. Uh, uh, from the city at the same time, it's, it's probably creating more demand for a lot of these services. So it's tough. Um, but we do know it's expanding geographically, uh, to, you know, I think it was like six square miles before. Um, and it's going to be basically 32 square miles to sort of problem areas, um, you know, throughout the city, focusing on the, the West, Southwest, North and, and Northeast part, part of the city, um, which are traditionally part of what we call the inverted L. Um, it's sort of this if you, if you superimposed an, an an inverted or upside down L, I'm not sure what's technically right, on a map. Basically, you know, the same the same places that tend to have um, a higher distribution of of people of color are the same places that tend to have um, lower income, um, lower graduation rates. You know, um, all these sort of uh, and then health implications as well negative health implications so that that's something the city has expressed interest at least verbally in in, in fixing and I think it's probably similar in a lot of places so that's where it's expanding um, geographically and then um, as far as capacity um, you know there's going to be more vans there's going to be more um, professionals helping these people um, and and the, the big question for me as a reporter because I've covered um, police and jail and corrections funding um, you know, pretty extensively here in Denver. And what my research and reporting shows is that, is that, you know, year after year, public safety, that's what the city calls it, you know, policing and jailing sort of makes up the, by far the largest chunk of the city budget. Oh yes. True in many places. Pretty much every city, right? And, and when you, when you compare that to um, violent crime rates and even nonviolent crime rates, but I think violent crime rates are, are sort of the more important piece. Um, even when you, you know, account for population the crime rate doesn't go down so so to me I'm not sure there's a correlation between funding you know and and safety I mean I'm sure there is to an extent but it's not like oh, if you just throw money at the police department it's necessarily going to become more safe right so so I think the big question for a lot of people in the future is where the money for star is going to come from Is it going to be this grant funded situation where it's not necessarily a permanent, um, a permanent uh, line item in the budget, or will it become a permanent line item in the budget? And Mayor Michael Hancock has uh, and the city council has put some money, I think it's like a million, million point five. I, I would have to ch- fact check that um, in, in the budget um, for, for this year, but you know, uh, that's not a whole lot of money <laughs> when you compare and it to every year's a new battle and a new budget, right? Yeah, the hundreds of millions of dollars, um, you know, that are going to sort of traditional policing and jailing. That's David Sachs. He is a journalist for Colorado Public Radio
0: and Denverite. His article on the STAR program in Denver from February of 2021 appeared in Denverite along with a piece on National Public Radio. We have links to both of those pieces up on our website. Thanks a lot for being my guest.
1: I appreciate it, David. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun.
0: And now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly Judicial Branch. And the story of this episode's lawyer judge behaving badly from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and the ever-reliable ABA Journal News Online concerns Judge David Cannon of Cherokee County, Georgia. And this story, like so many others, seems to have come from the file labeled... Social media gives you the opportunity to be publicly dumb. There are things you could say to a friend or a family member, around the table or at work, and even if they seemed wrong or dumb to whoever you might be talking to, that would basically be the end of it. You might discuss your thoughts with your friend, or your spouse might just ignore you. But social media? Hmm, Not really so much. Cherokee County, Georgia as you may remember, was recently the location of a horrific crime when a man murdered four of the eight people he eventually killed in massage parlors. You may recall that most were Asian women. As I record this, the killer has pleaded guilty to four of those eight murders in Cherokee County. After the crime occurred, the police apprehended the killer. After he was interrogated, a spokesperson for the county sheriff's office said in a March 17, 2021 news conference about the killer that the man was, quote, pretty much fed up and kind of at the end of his rope. Yesterday was a really bad day for him, and this is what he did. Those words, that explanation which, intended or not, seemed to strike a note of, empathy for the murderer, he had a really bad day, struck most people as horribly tone-deaf, insulting, and even denigrating to the victims. And here's where Judge Cannon decided to step in it. The judge said on a Facebook post that he thought that the spokesperson shouldn't be blamed for his statement. He was simply giving the perspective of the gunman. Quote, I believe the spokesperson was summarizing what he was told by investigators who interviewed the accused from the accused perspective, close quote, said Judge Cannon. Quoting again, and the spokesperson was not saying that the spokesperson's perspective that the accused had a bad day. Feel free to disagree, but read the transcript first, which Judge Cannon helpfully posted. Yeah, well, we all know how the police are just so eager to give the public the criminal's perspective just to help the public understand. When someone said on Facebook back to Judge Cannon that the spokesperson should not have made the statement, Judge Cannon forged on. Quote again, As a judge, I don't like them tainting the jury pool about a confession that may or may not be admissible depending on the circumstances. Close quote. Expressing his own discomfort with the spokesperson's statement from his own judicial point of view. Quote again, so I'd rather them just say, we caught him. Close quote. Well, yes, it would not be a good thing for police to discuss a suspect's confession with the press. Judge Cannon is correct that it could influence a potential jury. What if a judge later decided that the confession had been obtained in violation of the Constitution and could not be used at trial? How could the accused then get a fair trial with his confession already out in public? Yet, Judge Cannon decides to go ahead and amplify all of it with the prestige of the word judge just before his name. But all of this was troubling in a different way to the Judicial Qualifications Commission of Georgia, which filed a complaint against Judge Cannon with the Georgia Supreme Court. The complaint said that Judge Cannon had acted in a way that did not promote public confidence in the judiciary— and that he had lent the prestige of his office to advancing the private interests of others. Why? Because Judge Cannon was commenting on matters that would be in court in his own county. And while he had not yet been assigned the murder cases himself, he conceded that it was possible he could still be involved. He might be asked to sign search warrants, for example. But, Nevertheless, there he was on Facebook, giving everyone in the world his opinion. He just felt he had to, he said, because law enforcement was being perceived as some kind of joke. So he just had to step up. But what he did was step in it. And you know what it is. I don't know if Judge Cannon will be disciplined for this. His lawyer has argued that it's a free speech matter. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. But I do have one thought for certain. Lawyers and judges, feel free to have those conversations and make those remarks that pop into your head. But try them first with your friends, your families, maybe your co-workers... And maybe keep them there. Remember that social media is forever. And it gives you the chance to make stupid mistakes into gigantic forever stupid mistakes. Do you really want that? And that closes another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly Judicial Branch and with it another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website, that's criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Go to the Ask Dave tab on our website, and I'll see if I can give it a whack on the show. You can also call in your question by leaving us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. That number is... 412-407-3389. 412-407-3389. Again, 412-407-3389. That is it. Remember that we are listener-supported. If you like what you hear and you want to help, do that by going to patreon.com slash criminal We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. When something goes catastrophically wrong with a police action, we ask whose fault it was. Who made the mistake? Focusing on who's to blame is a key question for justice. But what if we want to prevent similar errors going forward? How do we fix the system that allowed the mistake to happen? That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at Criminal Podcast dot com.